Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Robin Rothenberg. Robin is an expert in breathing, and I was really interested in, uh, to understand more about her view on breathing and what she has found to be helpful, because I am also extremely interested in breathing. I've dealt with asthma since uh, I was very young, and I used to wheeze a lot, and uh, breath has always been a difficult thing for me to do. And then I started learning techniques for how to manipulate the breath maybe 10 years ago and then how to just become aware of the breath about seven or eight years ago. And it has been transformational and I'm really great to I'm really grateful for Robin and what she has to share here. And I think it's going to be valuable for you as well. So if you do enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other platform that you use to listen to podcasts. And it would be really great if you could leave us a review. I'm also on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. My DMs are open. If you have any questions, comments, anything you want to say about this episode or any other episodes, I'm there on Twitter and happy to connect. And also, one last thing, I have started a Patreon, and you can find that at Crazy Wisdom by searching for Crazy Wisdom on Patreon. I'd be grateful if you listen to a lot of these episodes and have found a lot of value from them. I'd be extremely grateful if you could uh, donate whatever you find valuable. And thank you and have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Robin Rothenberg. Uh, She is the founder of EYT, an accredited school for yoga therapy, and she's also an author of Restoring Prana, a therapeutic guide to pranayama and healing through the breath. Uh, It's great to have you here. I'm glad to be here. So I guess what is the difference between, if there is a difference between healing with the breath and pranayama? What is pranayama? Pranayama is the science of breath control that is an ancient part of the yoga practices that date all the way back to the original Vedas. And there's a lot of um, teachings on the the tradition of pranayama, how to work with the breath to create various um, energetic supports for health, um, for mind, for um, as in, you know, like mental clearing, mental focus, um, and for spiritual ascension mm. or leading to the state of samadhi, which is sometimes translated as enlightenment. But that state of pure um, uh, aware consciousness where the the ordinary mind is transcended essentially. So pranayama is one of the tools for that. And it is also um, a tool for healing. And it's also a tool for increasing health and vitality um, according to the Vedic teachings. And um, you've also been going into the science about what modern Western science is starting to tell us about the breath. Is that correct, too? Right. So um, if I can just kind of back up to like how I got to where I am now with the breath and my approach to it, um, it might help listeners as well. So um, there's... Uh, there's a lot of focus in yoga on breathing because it's one of pranayama is one of the primary eight limbs that is, that is part of the yoga practice. Um, and I was in involved in a tradition. There's many different traditions of yoga. So that's some of the confusion around breathing is different traditions approach um, movement and asana postures differently and and different approaches towards meditation and different approaches certainly towards pranayama so depending on what lineage um, people have different instructions from their teacher that's been passed down from their teacher from the original guru um, of that particular tradition as to how the breath is approached Uh, in and some some traditions focus have more focus on pranayama and some have very little focus on pranayama. So there's a wide variety there. The tradition that I was most involved in um, uh, was very involved with breath. And there was a lot of instruction around breath and a lot of instruction around utilization of pranayama techniques 
and um, and my teacher was known for being very um, established and knowledgeable about um, breathing practices. And that was part of what drew me to him and to the tradition uh, as a person with a lot of respiratory challenges in my history in my childhood i was i was i i always felt that there was something important for me in learning more about breathing so i felt like i knew a lot and that was that that's where i want to want to start is is basically i felt like i knew a lot and then um what happened was i i <clears throat> contracted a pretty bad respiratory um infection and from there um, it went into uh, a pretty severe state of asthma, and I could not control it using my breathing practices. Um, none of them were working. Mm. And so that took me in a different direction. And as a result of looking outside of the yoga tr tradition into something that came from a, a Russian doctor, the Buteko mm. method, um, that got me curious about learning more about breathing and respiratory science. I was exposed to that in my Buteco training and, and that took me down a very big rabbit hole, which actually circled me back to the original teachings of yoga. And I found out that I wasn't so far away from my, my yoga roots as I thought I was. It's just something got lost in the translation. Yeah. seems to happen a lot. Uh, I think too. And, um, so I'm very curious. You said you had this respiratory uh, crisis, and and this mm -hmm. this this, this uh, essentially it didn't respond to some of the other breathing techniques that you had learned in in the in the in the pranayama trainings previously. Right. Um, what were some of those main techniques you were using in that in that period before that happened? Um, okay, so I tried a number of things because I was having uh, what uh, what amounted to unrelenting coughing fits mm. that were keeping me up all night to the extent that my husband, I just said, please go in the other room so mm. you can sleep because one of us should. Mm. Um, and trying a variety of different propped positions to try and keep my um, lungs from filling and, and to keep me from coughing. And then um, a variety of trying to restrain my breath to trying to um, calm my breath down through a, a, a specific practice called krama, where you just take in little bits of the breath at a time, um, to actually doing um, rapid breathing to kind of take more control over my respiratory muscles to keep them from spasming. Because mm. I could feel I was having bronchial spasms. Mm. Um, but all of them required me doing a lot of I want to say like heavy lifting with the breath. Like I was mm -hmm. pushing and pulling on my breath, whether it was inhale or exhale, trying a variety of things to try and regain control of it. Mm. And I, and I would sometimes have a little bit of like um, respite for a brief period of time, but then it, it wasn't stopping this, the cycle and I was just getting sicker and sicker and, and, and weaker as well. I mean, it was very much affecting my entire um, vital system. And then what, it, what, what was it about Buteco breathing that either the philosophy behind it or the actual specific techniques that were able to uh, allow you to do something that had, had not previously been available to you? Yeah, so I knew about the Buteco method because I had had a long, um, uh, a, a very long-term relationship with a student who had started with me um, like 25 years ago with yoga, um, who was a, who was an asthmatic lifelong asthmatic. And she had used, I had watched her use the Buteco breathing method to, uh, arrest her asthma sy symptoms mm -hmm. and, um, regain a lot of vitality in her life. And so when I, when I, uh, got to this point and it, it took me to get to this point where nothing I knew was working. Um, and my naturopath said, Robin, you know, you have asthma, you need to, you know, start doing inhalers and steroids and things like that. And I was like, okay, I, I need to take this more seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I called her and asked her if she would teach me the Buteco method. And from the first session I had with her, my 
coughing. Well, first of all, I slept that night mm. and I slept silently that night because I was starting to go into full-blown um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea. I could mm. feel my throat closing off because all the coughing had created such irritation in my airways that they were closing down. So as I was falling asleep, I could feel that happening, which was also terrifying. Um, and I slept quietly. My husband said I didn't snore for the first time in forever. Um, and, uh, and, and I slept deeply. And from there on with the practice, my coughing reduced within that first week by 75% and then continued to get better and better. So it got my attention big time right? Because it was such a dramatic shift and there was nothing else that had changed. All I had done was do this breathing practice as she had recommended it, um, which meant practicing it multiple times a day for 15, 20 minutes at a time. And, um, and my health was improving exponentially each day. So by the third week, I just was ready to read anything and everything about it and learn more and basically signed up to do a training, mm. Mm. <laughs> which took me to, to, to my, my, my Buteco, my Buteco training teacher, um, Patrick McEwen, um, who lives in, in Dublin mm. or he lives in Galway actually, but he, he's, he also works in Dublin. So ended up flying to Ireland to, to train with him. That's really cool. Um, and is the buteco? Is it a set of techniques, or is it one technique? There's really um, there's there's really two primary pieces to the buteco breathing method. One is the and it's sort of like that the 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 heart of it, which is to reduce your overall breath, your respiratory rate, and your respiratory volume. Mm -hmm. So, bringing the breath down, making it actually smaller, lighter. Um, which is a way of, there's a couple of things that go along with that. One is that it reduces the irritation that's happening in the airways because you're not running like a hurricane through your airways all the time by breathing heavily. Um, so it brings the inflammation down. The other very critical piece, and this is sort of what took me down the whole science road, is that um, it it actually restores balance to... Uh, to the the basically the entire chemical our entire chemical makeup because oxygen and CO two are the two primary gases that that run our chemistry and when they get out of balance it throws when CO two in particular is out of balance it throws our our pH off which affects our acid alkaline balance and that is a big problem for homeostasis or health so as it turns out the more we breathe the more we breathe out our co2 and so breathing um, in consistently large quantities taking big breaths coughing is actually very big breathing as is snoring as is sighing as is um, yawning they're all big breathe ways of big breathing um, and they can actually drop co2 below normal healthy levels and that can actually change our chemistry in a very unfortunately not healthy way mm. uh, yeah i've been reading a lot about this in this book called uh, recognizing and treating breathing disorders um and mm -hmm. I, it's yeah. my it's my it's it's my bible that one <laughs> cool. it, was, it was yeah leon chai tao and his group just that's an amazingly um, just really fantastic resource for learning about breathing disorders. Yeah, it's mind blowing, and and uh, I'm now on this. I'm going on it the second time because the first time was was rough going uh, with all the with all the new words and all the new kind of mental models. Yes, and this and the, and it's going over and over and over again. They're talking about the CO2 versus um, oxygen saturation in the blood and how you right. lower, the, lower the CO2 and then you have more alkaline in the blood which leads re to respiratory alkalosis, alkalosis. Um, and, uh, yes. and, and, uh, and so this is really interesting that the we take a method is basically just saying don't breathe as much. And it's interesting because it's a similar type of thing of like fasting. So I guess Buteco could be kind yes. of considered maybe like a fasting for the breath. Would that be accurate? Yeah. The, I mean, that's one of the ways I describe it to people. It's like going on an air diet. Mm. And with the idea, not that you're actually, um, you're, it's actually just getting you to, to your, 
to normal functional breath. I mean, Butego breathing, unlike pranayama, um, which I'll, I'll kind of link what I mean about that, is really simply about getting people to function to normal, healthy levels of CO2 where they should be mm-hmm. um, from having them too low. And it's a process to do that. And so Dr. Buteko is a Russian. He was, he, he's, he's passed now, but um, he, he discovered that the more people breathe, the more, uh, the less healthy they seem to be. And that people who were healthier seem to breathe in a quieter way at lower volumes. Yep. And, um, and so working, he, he developed this method of reducing the breath. That's actually what he calls it is reduced breathing, combining with breath holding mm-hmm. um, to gradually um, reset the respiratory uh, response in the central nervous system so that there's less call overall to breathe. So that there's, it's just quieting the whole system down. And, and I, and I call it, you know, basically, yeah, going on an air diet in the sense of taking you from, let's say four or 5,000 calories a day, just down to 2,000, 2,500, where is it, your body is not being overloaded or overburdened by so much air flow, right? Just getting to normal. Pranayama, on the other hand, the yogis, because the way that they lived, they were already mm. in pranic balance. Mm-hmm. They were using breath holding, breath suspension and retention to actually drive their CO2 levels even higher, mm. which induces this very kind of um, alert, calm, expansive, open state in the mind. There's such a flush of oxygen to the brain and CO2 is a, um, a, a neurological kind of sedative. It has a quieting effect um, on, on the nervous system. So there's this just very internal quietude that develops when you get your CO2 levels up that high along with normal oxygen levels. So this is different than somebody who's suffering from COPD or some other kind of um, uh, lung or health disorder where they have high levels of CO2 because they can't exhale because their lung function is low. And so they're, they're, the CO2 is building up toxically. This is a whole different scenario taking somebody who's very healthy with healthy levels of oxygen and CO2 and good lung function and then upping the, the CO2 in order to manipulate what's happening in the mind and induce a state of deep meditative reflective reflection that is i'm really glad that you said that and thank you because uh that is something so i grew up with asthma and i've always had a lot of trouble breathing and a large part of my yoga uh has been trying to essentially fix it uh but then i would go on go on the internet and find really intense practices or or just these normal yes. practices like pastrika or, or kapalbhati which mm-hmm. are normally taught in yoga classes and then it, it, it slowly dawned on me that these are very advanced practices and that it, the, the trauma that I have that the breath is just a symptom of needs to be uncovered before I started doing those things. And I was, so I was like skipping steps, um, which I think is a very common thing for, for most people these days. And it seems like that, that this book that I'm reading, this um, treating, recognizing and treating breathing disorders, that even if somebody doesn't have asthma, most of the people on this planet are not breathing in a way that's supportive of their, of their health. Um, uh, and they're either breathing faster than normal. So it's like doing these types of practices that are what you're saying are, are like, that's like already once you've kind of gotten to that basic level of like breathing is fine, then you can do these practices. It's really interesting. That's, that's the conclusion that I've come to. Um, and I think that when you look at what, what affects our breathing, um, which if you really pay attention, it, it the the sum total is everything. But certainly um, our environment, but also our food affects how we breathe, and um, you know taking medications affects how we breathe, and our stress levels affect how we breathe, and then how we breathe affects how we breathe. So mm-hmm. if we become like I was, I didn't I didn't know until I went down this whole journey. Um, that I had been a habitual mouth breather my whole life. And that in and of itself made me a big breather. And I started that because I had 
adenoid issues as a child. And so my upper airways were obstructed, which turned me into a mouth breather. I got my air adenoids out, but nobody retrained me at the age of four or five how to breathe through my nose. So I continued to breathe through my mouth and continued to have a, a vulnerability to respiratory infections and coughing. And of course, the more I coughed, the more I breathed. And I lived in a pretty stressful household. And so there was a lot of stress going on all the time. And I was a sensitive kid. So I was breathing more because I was kind of freaked out about, you know, were things going to be okay or were my parents going to get a divorce and all of that kind of childhood trauma. And so all of these things, you know, built on each other. Um, my gut wasn't in great order because I took a lot of antibiotics because I was sick all the time, which means I didn't digest well. And all of that affected my breathing as well. A lot of food sensitivities and allergies. So by the time this crisis happened, it had been brewing for a long time um, in spite of my yoga practice. I mean, probably when I... When I was on my yoga mat, I did have my mouth closed because my yoga teachers always stressed to breathe with my mouth closed and breathe through my nose when I was doing yoga. So I did it there. But I also made a point of doing what my yoga teachers were telling me to do, which was, you know, doing these very big audible breaths, mm. which were further irritating my already irritated airways. Um, and then as I began lecturing more and going into doing my training programs where I would be teaching for eight hours a day for five, 10 days straight. And by the end of it, I had no energy and I would be just coughing every time I opened my mouth. Now I completely understand that was happening was that I was in a pretty deep state of hyperventilation and my airways were extremely inflamed. And the combination was what was sending me um, sending my health backwards. Um, and, and I didn't know it was all because I was over breathing because talking all of that time also is a lot of over breathing. And I want to get to that too, but I think a really important thing would be good mm. out right now is that, uh, is that, um, if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, Oh, you know, maybe I have issues with my breathing. How would, how, what are some clues that somebody would understand if they're hyperventilating or if they're absolutely. Yeah. So, um, if you're a chronic sire, you know, like if you're on a regular basis, just ah, hear yourself doing that. It's likely that you're an overbreather. Uh, if you're a chronic sniffer, uh, that's another sign of overbreathing. Um, if you find yourself yawning a lot, if you snore, um, certainly if you have sleep apnea, it's something to look into. Uh, and if you constantly feel like you're just not getting enough air, and this is where it gets kind of confusing because how could, how could it mean that I'm breathing too much if it feels like I'm not getting enough air, but this has to do with the, the physiology and the chemistry and the way the nervous system is, is, uh, is wired up in relationship to CO2. But basically as our CO2 levels drop, the ventilatory response in the brain actually accelerates. So it starts telling us mm -hmm. to breathe more and more and more. Um, and that's because CO2 is needed in order for the tissues of the body to get oxygenated, which is called the Bohr effect. So when our CO2 levels go down, what happens is um, we feel under oxygenated and our brain tells us there's not enough oxygen to go around, so we should breathe more. Um, but when in fact, the, the way to stop that whole vicious cycle is to breathe less, build the, ox the CO2 levels up so that the body becomes flush with oxygen and, and homeostasis is restored. I keep on running into this over and over again, not just with the breath, but everything having to do with homeostasis and everything having to do with um, uh, stress is that essentially there's this response that happens. And for those of us who are unfortunate, it happens when we're younger, um, but mm -hmm. where it's just like so stressful that our body tries to get us out of that initial stress. And so it adopts these patterns, which are ultimately in the long run, very, very unhealthy and leading to right. all the symptoms that we're, that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, but our body is just trying to protect us. And, and so this breathing yes. is like, it's just trying to get us out of that state. 
but then there's there, there's no resolution that happens, which I think maybe leads to another kind of cultural issue, is that uh, a resolution in our society is not something that we really think about, uh, because in order to do that, we'd have to think about death. Um, but yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we'll, the inevitable we'll, reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you think of that? Um, I, I I think it's true, and I think we tend to be a society that looks for fixes as opposed to what you say, as you put it, kind of resolution going back to what's the source of the problem. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's a lot of what, you know, people are, are looking for like, Oh, I can't breathe. Give me some things to open my airway. So it makes breathing easier, but actually a lot of those, the rescue inhalers um, accelerate the breathing breath rate, um, increase heart rate, keep people a little bit, pumped up sympathetically that is in the sympathetic um uh nervous system which means a little bit on that on that high alert level which is going to be more a state a state which will more likely trigger um anxiety asthma you know and a reoccurrence of the problem so it's a short-term fix that has a kind of long long-term unfortunate you know deep it it seeds it even more deeply more insidiously into our system and makes our bodies less resilient and our minds less resilient i mean the research on the connection between anxiety and asthma is pretty significant um and you could look chicken and egg which started it you know was it some kind of psycho-emotional issue and anxiety that led to um, a hyperventilated state, and then that led to sort of reoccurring asthma, or was it some the the breathing issues in the airway constriction that then of course creates this feeling like I can't breathe and panic that leads to anxiety. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you address anxiety, but you don't teach somebody how to retrain their breathing so that their CO2 levels come up, they're they're always going to have a vulnerability around there that that piece and will be more likely to be put into a panic attack or anxiety attack um, just because their chemistry is off balance. And this gets to a point uh, that I want to talk about with you specifically that there, we've been talking a lot about regulation of the breath. And I have this, mm-hmm. I have this mental model about the breath that there's only a few different ways that we can relate to it. We can either regulate it, control it, uh, or we can become aware of it um, and just witness it as, it as it is, or we can enjoy it, which which is a new new one that I just recently got, which is that we can just sit there and enjoy the breath, which is something a lot of us don't necessarily think about, something we can do with the breath. Um, but that awareness piece, that one seems to be the one that's most highly valued or most highly is the biggest goal, it seems like, in most contemplative tradition is to just silently becoming aware of the breath as opposed to manipulating it. And I'd be curious what's, what part of your journey has, what do you believe on this awareness versus regulation part? Yeah. So awareness is a key piece of my teaching. Um, Whether we're talking about breath or transformation of movement patterns um, or, or transformation of mental patterns. Um, So awareness, nothing changes without awareness. Mm -hmm. We have to become conscious of something in order for it to change. Um, So awareness is huge. My book is the first couple chapters are all about breath awareness. However, here's the thing. Yoga is about action. Mm -hmm. Kriya yoga is, is the, is made up of three components. The first one is tapas, which is the effort that and discipline that it takes to transform patterns that are not beneficial. And the second piece is Fadyaya, which is the awareness to know what the heck those patterns are and what needs to be transformed and what would be the tools to transform it. And then the third is recognizing that um, even as you're in the midst of transforming yourself for the good, remember it's never all about you. And Mm. so it's a recognition of the connection that we have to um, that which is highest and to be of service to others. So there's action involved. And that's the point is that I, that I spent a lot of years um, being trained to observe the breath and being instructed to uh, become aware and witness the breath and have witnessed it in a lot of ways. And 
also manipulated it in a variety of different ways to have variety of different experiences from feeling like it calmed me down to feeling like it gave me a little boost of energy when I was kind of falling asleep or feeling kind of sluggish to having it agitate me, manipulating it and having it kind of create this agitation. So um, there's definitely power in, in, in doing something to, in the, in the direction of change. Um, the, the breath is a pattern. Um, we breathe in a pattern, right? Like everything else that we do, there's a habit, a pattern that's been, that's evolved as a result of whatever we've done before. And yoga is really about transforming our patterns that don't serve us. And that takes effort, that takes action, that takes awareness, all of that. So the point I'm getting to here is that observing the breath is not going to transform that pattern. We breathe close to 20,000, 24,000 times a day. So just watching that pattern will not transform something as um, uh, deep within us as our acid alkaline balance, right? And all the years of watching the breath and doing sort of like little, short little pranayama practices for the moment, like, oh, I'm stressed, I'll do this breathing, I'll focus on my exhale and just kind of relax into my exhale and it'll calm me down. And it would be like a short-term fix. What has changed my mind and changed my life with the Buteco breathing, it is, it is actually changed my breathing and it's changed my chemistry through consistent practice you know, a, a minimum of an hour every day for years. Um, and that has changed how I breathe overall. I breathe at a lower breath rate. My heart rate overall has gone from 72 to 74 beats a minute down to 64 on a consistent basis. So it, it's changed. It's changed the way that I digest. It's changed the way I think. It's changed so much. It changed my my cardio capacity, my aerobic capacity, um, that has changed by doing something different consistently, not just by passively watching. And that's not to say that the awareness piece isn't important. It was the foundation for it. But just watching the breath would not change, may have changed what has changed inside of me. That was done through concerted effort and action on a consistent basis. Very interesting. So I'd love now to move more into the science behind it. And I have a personal question here, which is that, so I've, you know, I was a reverse breather, breather, paradoxical breather for a very long time. And I, mm -hmm. through, through various different techniques, managed to figure out how to breathe more into the lateral rib expansion and get the 360 degrees motion in the, in the diaphragm and kind of, you know, really kind of expand that. But I'm noticing, you know, and this is like 12, 13 years after I've, well, it, it was, it's been about seven years since I've, since I've made that fundamental realization and started to breathe in a different way. Um, but I'm noticing all of my accessory muscles of, of the breath are still very, very much um, tuned up, tonic, tight, tense, all these mm -hmm. different things. So for those of those who don't know, uh, when we are breathing in our chest or lifting the rib cage in order to breathe because we can't breathe into our belly or breathe in with our, our uh, diaphragm, all these muscles, basically the sternocleidomastoid, the scalenes, the quadratus lumborum basically assist in this opening up of the chest so that you can get more breath in there. Um, but then they, they, but they are essentially are always turned on. Um, and, and I'm wondering for you, what ha has the Buteco method helped you kind of, because I imagine you had some or similar situation or maybe your clients do have any of these techniques, how, what is the best way to basically lower this resting tension of the, of these muscles that were working for so long? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, and uh, I just, um, I'm, uh, I do address it at, at great length in the book because the biomechanics, what you're talking about now, we were talking about biochemistry of breathing before and somewhat about the psycho-emotional piece around stress and lifestyle and how that affects the breath. So there's chemist, there's biochemistry, there's the kind of like the psycho-emotional connection to the breath. And then there's the biomechanics. How are we actually breathing? What are we, what muscles are we recruiting in, in our, in our daily breathing process? Um, and um, 
so paradoxical breathing. So the, let's start with normal, normal breathing, um, normal, healthy breath. Um, as we inhale, the diaphragm moves down from its little domed parachute position where it rests up inside the rib cage. It moves down and spreads out just if you think about a parachute, or sometimes I use jellyfish as an image, but the, the, the base of the head of the, of the mushroom right, spreads out. So the diaphragm flattens down and it spreads the rib cage, which it attaches to. And then as we exhale in just normal, non-breath technique way, just natural breathing, there's a passive recoil where as we exhale, the abdominal muscles ideally um, support the diaphragm and the rib cage in narrowing. Um, sorry, I'm losing my earbuds here. Um, so the, the abdominals draw inward, um, assisting the diaphragm in its passive recoil where it returns back into that dome position and the rib cage narrows towards center. So there's an expansion, lateral expansion, as you described, um, on inhale of the lower rib cage and then exhale, the rib cage narrows and the diaphragm returns into its little dome. So in paradoxical breathing, the opposite happens. On inhale, the diaphragm moves in and up and the abdominal muscles often move in as well, kind of locking it in place. And I think about paradoxical breathing as a trauma breath um, because if you think about how you, what would happen um, if you were walking down a dark alley and you heard a noise behind you and you would go, <gasps> and that kind of panic lift, it lifts the diaphragm and it freezes it in place because it's part of the freeze mm -hmm. system, part of the, the nervous system, which says freeze everything because even your breath could give you away to the predator, mm -hmm. right? So um, that's great if you're walking down an alley or in the woods by yourself or something and you, an animal is stalking you. Like that's, that's a good thing to have our system wired for if you're breathing every day like that because you've been entrained through whatever has happened in your life that life is not safe and you have to always be on the alert for something like that and make yourself kind of small and invisible and um, then paradoxical breathing can happen. Um, Less, less um, dramatic, but equally as um, challenging on our structure and uh, on our nervous system is chest breathing, which is just involves the lifting of, as you said, lifting of the ribs and the involvement of the accessory muscles, which are primarily the pecs, the scalenes, and the upper traps. Um, and um, QL actually technically is down. It's, it's actually a low back muscle, mm -hmm. not involved directly in breathing. It does right. actually attach to the diaphragm, but it's down part of the lower part, part of more of the core, core piece um, in the, uh, it, it uh, works uh, synergistically with the abdominal muscles. Mm -hmm. So um, chest breathing also creates a lot of strain and tension in the upper body and chronic you asked what are other signs of overbreathing? Chronic neck and shoulder tension because people who breathe 20,000 times a day by lifting their rib cage and tensing their neck and shoulders and their jaw, TM, TMJ, you know, like where they have tension, TMDJ, I should say, um, dysfunction of the jaw joint, uh, chronic clenchers, um, all of those apparatuses get hypertonic from the habituation of breathing up breathing up instead of breathing um, up and in instead of out and mm -hmm. down. Um, and the retraining process for me as a yoga person, I work a lot with people. I'm a yoga therapist, so I work a lot with people who have chronic neck and shoulder pain, people have chronic back pain, um, as well as people who have anxiety, depression, and, and a variety of other issues. Um, teaching people how to biomechanically retrain themselves so that they are using, they are doing abdominal diaphragmatic breathing. The breath doesn't actually ever go into the belly. Thank God it stays in the, in the lungs, but the abdominal muscles can be 
um, trained to work synergistically as they were intended with the diaphragm to augment that nice um, jellyfish style breathing where there's that outward um, opening with the in-breath and then an inward uh, hug with the out-breath. And the, the abdominal muscles, as they get more conditioned um, to do that, provide core support. As it turns out, the diaphragm is, is actually a primary core stabilizer. So it is part of the abdominal core. But when we chest breathe, we, actually, we disengage it. And so not only do we become more tense up above, but we become more vulnerable um, to, to low back issues um, by, be, by being chronic chest breathers. So there's a lot to the retraining process. And I do address the biomechanics as well as the biochemistry and the psycho-emotional piece in my book. What is the core component to the relaxation of these, of these muscles? Of the chest? Muscles of the, of the yeah I mean I guess the yeah the, the, the chest and neck yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I do I do it in two parts one of them involves um, working um, with those muscles specifically to relieve to become aware mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. we go back to awareness to become mm-hmm. aware of how hypertonic they are and a variety of processes to unwind which mm-hmm. I call undulation and there's a series of undulation. Um, practices that I give in my book. And then once they are quieted, then to shift attention down to the abdominal area, pelvic floor, lower abdominals, transverse abdominis and obliques, and start to work with them very specifically. And there's a set of exercises to learn how to recruit them while consistently going back upstairs and checking in if Mm -hmm. things are tensing up, undulate and unwind upstairs while recruiting downstairs. Because you got to work both sides because, again, it's a pattern. And it's a pattern that is very deeply habituated. So when I work with my clients this way, um, it's, it's a little bit of core breathing is what I call it, where they're really actively engaging the abdominals um, in, this, in the process of the exhale um, and releasing them on the inhale and checking in with neck and shoulders and jaw and, and consistently unwinding um, and, and releasing and relaxing them. Mm-hmm. And, um- and I actually do find it's very effective. Mm-hmm. And I'd be happy to teach you. Cool. Um, so there's two things I want to continue on. Uh, and I'll give you the choice. Basically, we so we a while back we were talking about connection between breath, the diaphragm, uh, and you mentioned two other things that it was good for, and that was posture and voice. And you just talked about how the diaphragm was good for posture, uh, but then there's mm-hmm. the voice issue that gets really interesting, really complex as well. Um, it so is. There's, there's that point. And then there's the other part, the actual part that I got, uh, I found you from, uh, which was I was asking questions about what happens to the brain once we start to in, um, entrain it on the breath, either in an awareness capacity or in a regulation capacity. Um, and I'd love to talk about like specifically what maybe structures are involved or what interesting things you've found through your exploration about the neuroscience of, of breath regulation or breath awareness. So either of those two things, which would you like? The latter is definitely the juiciest part of it for me. Although what I will say about, I'll just say a little bit about the voice piece, mm-hmm. which is um, I have personally noticed that as my breath has gotten more regulated and, and when I say regulated, I mean, I'm just, I'm na- I naturally breathe at a very calm, low volume as opposed, mm-hmm. and I no longer have that urge to deep sigh. I was, I was very much a, a deep sire. And that's what my, my kids used to, my daughters used to make fun of me by going, oh, here's mom. <sighs> you know, and now I tease them that that's, they were making fun of my, my breathing disorder pattern, you know, um, dysfunctional breathing pattern. But they, um, they, they understand that now, but back then none of us did. We just figured that was, I would decide all the time. That was just part of who I was. Um, my breath, my voice would crack a lot. Um, I would feel breathless when I spoke, um, quite a bit. I've done a lot of work with my speech to become a person who pauses more in speech as opposed to going on and on. Although I do still have that habit. It's probably been the hardest one for me to break, but I do find that overall my breath 
has, I mean, my voice has become smoother and more melodic and I don't have the scratchiness or soreness in my throat after speaking. And so um, I, I feel the connection between my breath and my um, speech, my voice, my throat, my tongue. I'm very aware of all those apparatuses. I mean, we could get into a whole thing about the tongue and tongue placement and um, the importance of the tongue with breathing. It's, it's a huge topic there. Mm-hmm. But I just want to say that, yes, uh, voice and breath are very intrinsically linked. Cool. So people who have sort of, they, they have that kind of strangly feeling when they talk, that could also very much be a part of a dysfunctional breathing pattern mm-hmm. and something worth looking into. And that, that for me, that's like, because uh, I have it as well, where I speak from my throat as opposed to my belly. I can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> You're sitting right on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's always, that's always interesting to how to bring the voice down to the belly basically and, and get that kind of resonance. Uh, and, but it also requires this sort of relaxation of the, of the vocal cords. And this is what I've been geeking out on the past few days is this intimate connection between the diaphragm and the vocal cords and that ab- mm-hmm. abduction on the inhale, it seems commiserate with the descending of the diaphra- diaphragm on the inhale. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all of those apparatuses in the vocal cords, the glottis, everything in the, the, those, the airways can be very inflamed from overbreathing. Mm-hmm. And so, and that can also create that feeling of, of strangulation or, and lead to the cracked voice and, and, and that kind of thing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the the neuroscience of it. What, what what's the most interesting thing you've discovered recently, or in your book? Well, in my process, one of the things that happened. I mean, Bottega breathing. The, the my orientation to learning about the breath um, was really about getting my my get stop to stop coughing. You know, get for me asthma. I'm not a wheezer. I'm a coffer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the chronic coughing and getting my coughing under control and being able to regain my, my energy because it was, ex- I don't know if you've ever had a coughing attack, but um, it's exhausting. Yep. And um, after three months, nonstop coughing, I was really wiped out. I had very, very little, what we call prana, you know, chi energy, vitality um, and was, and was feeling a lot of chronic pain and sort of like a, a lot of the symptoms from my childhood that had, I had, I had thought were long gone came back to haunt me. So my, my impetus was that what happened as I started doing the breath and got sort of past that first tier, which was like, Oh great. I'm not coughing so much or eventually hardly at all. And my energy's coming up. But what I noticed was this clarity in my mind and I felt like I was, uh, I was one of one of my uh, one of the students that I've worked with, who's also a yoga teacher. Um, she said, I, "I feel like I keep having this like these like aha moments, like I just like all of a sudden just things are coming together." And I remember saying to one of my colleagues when I was in in the midst of this process, kind of whispering to him because he he knows me well and he knew that I wasn't coming from an ego place. But I said, "I feel like I'm getting smarter," mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, I realized through my, I realized through my research um, for the book that what's happening is I, I, in some ways, yes, I got smarter because I got more ox. I was getting more oxygen to my brain that um, the reduced breathing, the breath holds that intermittent hypoxia um, that you self induce through breath holding actually sends a surge of oxygen to the brain. So the brain gets very flushed with oxygen. And then there's this incredible clarity of mind, which of course the yogis talk about that through pranayama and the ratios where they're doing these long breath holds, that there's this amazing clarity and stillness of the mind. So I happen to work with several um, people who have neurological conditions, um, from TBI, traumatic brain injury, to um, uh, a, a variety of movement disorders like Parkinson's, tardive dyskinesia, and MS. So I use these this short breath holds with them. 
um, when they're feeling tired, when they're feeling brain fog, when kind of fuzzy in the brain, when they're, um, they just feel like they, they just can't hold their attention um, and have seen some remarkable shifts with tremors, with definitely with mental clarity, but uh, some amazing changes, positive changes that they speak to as well um, in terms of their, um, their ability to hold attention and their feeling of like they're out of that fog and that there's great stillness in their body that they otherwise have not been able to experience. Hmm. And so that derives from essentially a, there's this, this, this automatic reflex that once you start, start holding the breath, then oxygen basically gets sent to the brain. Is that like a, essentially like a stress response? Like let's, we're out of breath. So let's get oxygen to the breath, uh, to the brain. So yes, in terms of the brain piece, um, and intermittent hypoxic therapy has actually been around for like 30 years in the Mm -hmm. West. Um, and there's been quite a bit of research done on it and, um, and they found that it good for weight loss and very helpful um, uh, for people in um, in changing their metabolism. Mm. Uh, and and if you think about high altitude training and people who live in the mountains often tend to have they tend to be healthier than people who live at sea level, um, far lower levels of of uh, uh, diabetes and um, better aerobic fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and athletes often will do high altitude training in order to, um, increase their performance, which the Buteco method, several, um, of the trainers, including, uh, Patrick, who I work with, he, he trains, uh, professional athletes, um, to using the Buteco method instead of high altitude training, he does mm. the Buteco method with him. So there's that piece. The other piece is that when CO2 levels go up, remember I mentioned that CO2 has this sedative effect on, mm. on the synapses mm. so that there's, there's this quieting. So for people with uh, tremors and, um, and, and dystonias, it has this kind of, it ha- seems to have this effect of, um, of quieting the the spasms calming the spasms down mm-hmm. so and this is kind of random but but uh the for a long time i was using this two to one breathing where i'd inhale for four seconds and then exhale for eight seconds i still use it quite a bit particularly for just kind mm-hmm. of like stressful situations uh, but then there's mm-hmm. this this elastic recoil that you talked about for the diet for the diaphragm and i've been intellectually aware of it for a long time but it's like extremely difficult for me to actually just relax my diaphragm and allow it to just return. Um, uh, and I don't know, have you run into that with anybody else? Yeah. What I recommend is the core breathing where you, what you do is you, you, it's hard if, if it's hard to get in touch with the diaphragm. It's a, it's, it's one of the the deepest, most intrinsic muscle layers, the diaphragm, Mm -hmm. right? So it's harder for us to feel those deeper muscle layers. Muscles are, literally layered from superficial to deep. So it's easier for us to recruit muscles like the transverse abdominis or the, and the obliques, which are attached to the rib cage, the diaphragm. And they, we, by, by activating them, recruiting them with the breath, what happens is it brings the diaphragm along. Mm. And so that's how I approach it. And I find that it works very, very well in combination with the, consistent relaxation of the scalenes of the pecs of the upper traps levator of like i said the muscles upstairs that tend to be hypertonic and and keep wanting to pull you have to do both sides of the equation um, especially with someone like you who is a paradoxical breather Um, and and i and i have a variety of different you know like little techniques and call them tricks or whatever that can help people depending on where, what part of the breath they're having trouble with mm-hmm. and, um, and using hands on and things like that to bring more awareness. And so what are the main structures involved in the brain in terms of regulating or becoming aware of the breath? Well, the structure that actually runs the show is the medulla oblongata. It's part of the brain stem. Um, it run it it it's 
in charge of respiratory function, heart rate, vomiting, um, blood pressure. So all those things are all regulated together. Um, and uh, it is particularly sensitive to CO2. It actually doesn't mm -hmm. care so much about oxygen levels. Mm -hmm. It's really paying attention to how much CO2 is, is in the body. Because CO2, it dissociates, that is, it changes its chemical makeup to, to balance our pH. So we can change, pH is really critical to our health, mm. and it has to be in its little happy place between 7.34 and 7 point, uh, I'm sorry, 7.45 and 7.45. Mm. Um, so just slightly alkaline is where it likes to be. If it starts to shift a little bit to acid or a little bit more alkaline, there's like there's an immediate response physiologically we not, are not necessarily aware of it mm -hmm. but the quickest way to shift the ph is to change our breath rate so the medulla is like the, on the, the watchdog right mm -hmm. and it's just paying attention and if ph starts to go a little acid or alkaline it's going to cue us to breathe more or less interesting what happens is it which which is fine provided that we're that we breathe well and have everything is in its healthy place what happens when we over breathe over time is it resets our breathing to match to rebalance the ph the ph stays norm in that normal window but our breath rate is now right right dysregulated in order to maintain it mm. which in it of itself is not a homeostatic state yeah and then, um, so we got the medulla and that seems like unconscious breath. And now the question yes. is what about like conscious breath in the same way that I feel like, you know, we've got this thing in the brain that's called the homunculus, which represents all of the different, uh, my body parts. And so, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 my hands have a very large percentage of my, the mass yes. my brain has in my body. Um, and, but it feels like and your I, lips, and lips, yeah. lips and your tongue, <laughs> which, yeah, which get into what we're talking about. Um, but then. But then it seems like through practice of yoga, through these practice of yoga nitra, actually like bringing the attention into my feet, it feels like it makes the homunculus more adapted to those particular structures. And, and I was kidding with a friend of mine who's a Thai, Thai massage therapist. He mm -hmm. uh, uses his feet all the time and he has such yeah. incredible awareness in his feet. And so I'm wondering, is there a similar process now that we bring attention to the breath and all of these complicated holds and, and you know, like we can manipulate the breath and so many different ways as I've been discovering and so many more I find out about new ones all the time and I really wonder what is this doing to our conscious um, ability to uh, I don't know regulate other things as well or like what is happening as we consciously bring awareness to the breath you know I I, I don't I can't I can't answer on in a, any kind of scientific mm evidence-based way, because I don't even know that that has been studied in yep. the way that you're asking the question. But I would say that anything that we bring our awareness to in a consistent way, not just I paid attention to it for five minutes once on a Tuesday, but you know, like it, it, the yoga practices are always um, framed as consistent practice uninterrupted over a long period of time, done with an attitude of of detachment so that you're not like trying to get an outcome, but you're really, you just practice, you show up and you do it and you do it and you do it. Um, and that that's how change happens. And so um, by breathing, breathing consciously, consistently, I can say that my awareness of my breath at any point in time, I mean, I would wake myself up at night catching myself, having fallen back into a big breathing habit mm. once I started Buteco. Like I would wake up and go, oh my God, you're over breathing. And I would stop, wake myself up, sit up, do my breathing practice, get it back down and then go back to sleep. Mm. And I can even tell now if I've been, if I've been snoring at night, I can, I can tell when I wake up mm. and I'll verify with my husband, mm -hmm. you know, I can pretty much. So I was not aware of any of that. I can tell when I, when I eat how food is affecting 
my breathing. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I am hypersensitive to it now. I don't mean hypersensitive in a problematic way. I'm just hyper aware of it sorry, because I spent so much time. Sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> Go for it. So much time paying attention to it. So I think that's true about anything. Like your your friend, the Thai Thai masseuse, um, that you know is putting a lot of uh, he's using his feet a lot and using them to actually manipulate you know the client's body. So he has to be very aware and sensitive about what he's doing with his feet, much more so than those of us that clomp around in shoes all day. Mm -hmm. So certainly there's going to be more neural pathways that are going to be built right around that. So because he's using that part, any, you know, we have incredible potential, but we only use a small fraction of what we could be using. So on that level, yes, you can become more aware anywhere and everywhere um, of who, who we are, you know, through practice and through conscious attention. Um, I do just want to say one, one piece about this framing the breath in yoga terms around the central concept of prana, mm. um, because that's really what, what evolved for me out of this whole process was first, it just became around about sort of the, the biomechanics of breathing. And then I learned it, you know, to get my, myself to stop coughing. And then I learned it was, there was actually a whole biochemical piece to it. And then of course I was interested in the psychoemotional piece and looking at that. But when I, when I, where I ended up was understanding that, all of this from the yogic perspective was about regulating our prana and becoming masters of the energy that we're putting out and the energy that we're taking in and how well we're digesting and assimilating our prana, what we're actually doing with it. And that pranayama is really about mastering prana mm -hmm. and through the mastery of prana, mastering the mind. So I think it's, quite profound, you know, in a, in a, in a way that goes deeper perhaps than just training the muscles of the feet or the hands or the spine or all the other things that we can manipulate because it's really linking um, to those deeper, more to the more subtle body, to the way that we're actually um, functioning, thinking, interacting with the world mm -hmm. and with ourselves. That's really beautiful. Um, yeah, we got a couple of minutes left. And uh, what is like one thing that people uh, listening to this episode might benefit most from what we've talked about or anything else that you want to add in terms of either prana or the breath? Um, I would say that train yourself to become a 24-7 nose breather is really can do a lot for your health. If you're not um, paying attention to, I used to just say, you know, lips sealed, lips sealed, you know, keep the lips touching because I didn't even realize how much I just had my, my mouth open and was taking in through, through my mouth. So becoming a nose breather, think of the breath, in this more subtle way, like you're taking in prana, how much energy do you really need to take in? How can you evolve yourself to become more self-reliant um, and, and efficient with your prana? So you're not constantly grasping for more from the outside, but learning how to better utilize what you have on the inside, which means allowing for the pauses, right? Just training yourself to just be okay with the space between the breath. And in the same way with the exhale, although it can be um, relaxing in the immediate for one to do the one-two kind of ratio of breathing that you described, um, inhale four, exhale eight, um, to consider, again, how much energy, how much prana are you putting out and how much is really necessary. If you're sitting and reading a book, are you breathing as if you're walking up a hill? Mm. And if you're walking flat, are you breathing as if you're running up a hill? Like, How can you just turn the volume down and regulate so that you're only 
using the amount of prana that you actually need right now in this moment. And as opposed to always trying to kind of gather more and like get safe from this like resource gathering essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty profound. It's still, blows my mind that I can do all my exercise. I get on the elliptical, I elliptical at a higher incline faster than I've ever done in my entire life. And I breathe mm-hmm. through my nose the entire time. Mm-hmm. And I was a real huffer and puffer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a hard time with cardio fitness, which makes sense to me now. Um, and same thing with my walks. I, I, I have to puff through all of my, anytime I did any kind of exercise, I was huffing and puffing and I don't huff and puff. Mm. And I don't feel strain. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So um, just to wrap up, how can people find out more about what you're offering, um, whether that's the book or, or anything else going on in, in your yeah, life? I do, I do do Skype sessions with the breath if anyone's interested. Um, and, and all of that information can be found at essentialyogatherapy.com or EYT.yoga, essentialyogatherapy.com or EYT.yoga. And there's also um, under products, you can go to pre-order and pre-order the book. It'll be out in December, uh, Restoring Prana. And the workbook that goes along with that will be out next June. And at that point, I'll also be launching my online Pranayama certification program for yoga teachers and yoga therapists. Very cool. Uh, Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much. What a pleasure to, to, uh, to have this conversation with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Robin. And if you are more interested in the breath, I'd like to invite you to breathwork sessions that I'm leading every day uh, on Zoom. They're only 10 minutes long, and I'd love to invite you to come join those. If you are interested, go ahead and go on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. And send me a DM with your email address, and I'll add you to the list of people that I'm sending the schedule to every week. Uh, so it'd be great to have you do the, come do the breath work. And if you don't have Twitter, you can just email me at Stuart Alsop, I at uh, Stuart Alsop, I, I, I at gmail.com. That's Stuart Alsop, I, I, I at gmail.com. Uh, it'd be great to have you join the breath work. I'm releasing episodes every day, Monday through Friday, maybe even Monday through Saturday, because I've got so many in the backlog. Uh, So look out for episodes every day uh, and have a great day.